This audio recording is of our regularly scheduled service at Restoration Road Church in Snohomish, Washington on Sunday, December 13th. More information can be found at restorationroadchurch.com. All right, well, we're going to be back in Genesis. We're going to be in Genesis chapter 3. If you open your Bibles there, we're going to split it into two, and I'm going to do one part today and one part next week, and it will align perfectly with Christmas as God ordained because we don't plan ourselves that well. But we're in Genesis 3 for Christmas. Merry Christmas. Now, I wanted to just intro a little bit um, to explain where we've been. Um, the book of Genesis, um, particularly the first two chapters we've spent a lot of time on, uh, reveals really the ugliness of our sin. And I mean that by the, the brokenness of our world um, and all the things that, that right now are, are wrong with the world are revealed, if you will, in um, Genesis 1 and 2, where God reveals the beauty of his original designs. That's how we see it. And Genesis 1 and 2 is not just a picture of what has been created. It's also uh, a prophecy, if you will, or a promise of what's going to be recreated. And we see a, a restoration in the book of Revelation, and we understand what a world free of sin is going and has looked like in Genesis 1 and 2. Now, it's important to remember that Moses wrote the book of Genesis. He wrote the first five books of the Bible called the Pentateuch. And he penned this book, wrote this book, for the newly formed nation of Israel that come out of Egypt and was now wandering around in the wilderness. And these are the events that, that Moses records of, of what happens during this time. But it's likely that as Moses went out to meet God, which he did in this thing called the Tent of Meeting, and it says that the, God would speak to him face to face, if you will, and he would come out all glowing, having been in the glory and exposed to the glory of God, it's likely that in those times, God gave him insight and understanding, though some had come through oral tradition, but he gave them even more of what existed and what happened before he was around and asked him to write these things down, which is where we get the stories and the information of Genesis. And Moses was taught, if you will, the beginning of history. And it's important to remember that the Egyptian land that they had come out of and the promised land, the land of Canaan that they were going into, was full of pagan idolatry of all shapes and sizes. And God had set his people, he had chosen the Hebrew people to be different, to set them apart and to live in the world and not, if you will, be of the world. And in order for them to do that, he needed to give them a foundation to build upon. He needed to give them some understanding, some identity of who they were. Genesis reveals that all of the gods that they had seen in Egypt, all the things, the created things that, that Egypt worshipped, animals and rivers and moons and suns and stars, and all the gods that they would see the Canaanites worship were in fact created things, created by the one true God. And we understand why Genesis 1 is so important. And as they entered into the land of Canaan and, and dwelled with and around and fought against some very pagan cultures that were steeped in, in all kinds of immorality, Genesis reminds his people to live differently, that life was sacred. The human sacrifice, therefore, was evil. Evil. 
that marriage was holy, that sexuality was a gift to steward, not to exploit, and that families, godly families, were were God's tools essential in building God-glorifying culture. All these things written down so they have an understanding and a foundation to build upon this new nation that would be called Israel. But more than anything, the creation account that we've spent so many weeks on revealed the power and the authority of God's Word. God spoke these things into existence, and then God was now speaking to Moses and through Moses to communicate His Word to them. And Genesis 1 and 2 revealed to Moses and to his people, this is what happens when you obey my word. Things function rightly. Things are good when things function according to God's word. But then we get to Genesis 3. And Genesis 3 again, penned by Moses for God's people to see what happens when you reject God's word. What happens when you deny that God's word is true or that God is good? Things break. Things die. Genesis 3 revealed what comes when his rejection or when men reject his word and ultimately deny him. And so we have to begin Genesis 3 in our study of what has been known as the fall, backing up a little bit into Genesis chapter 2 where God gave a particular command. And in Genesis 2, it says, verse 15, The Lord God took the man and he put him in the garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. And the Lord commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall die. Now there are many trees in the Garden of Eden. And they produced many wonderful fruits. And Adam didn't have to work for the fruit of the garden. They just grew. It was there to enjoy. And all he had to do was reach out and take it and indulge himself and enjoy and receive nourishment and receive enjoyment from it. God had given permission and had even encouraged him to partake of everything except this one tree. Genesis 2 actually records the existence of many trees, but two trees in particular, they're at the center of the garden. One is called the tree of life, and one is called the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And the purpose of both these trees is actually revealed in Genesis Later in Genesis 3, which we'll look at next week, unlike the other fruit trees, the fruit of the tree of life appears to have empowered men to live forever. To avoid death, if you will, in every sense of the word. They took this fruit and they would live forever. The tree of knowledge of good and evil could probably be described more simply as the tree of the knowledge of evil, as God had already declared and revealed what was good. They had full awareness of what good was. The tree of the knowledge of good and evil not only had the power, though, to bring death, it actually had the power to fill man's heart with the desire for both good and for evil. 
with the desire for evil, with the desire for something good beyond what God has said good, which in and of itself is evil. So when God created Adam, he entered into a covenant with Adam, we see in this first couple verses of Genesis 2. And simply stated, a covenant is a binding of two parties, two individuals, an individual or group, two people in this specific set of promises. And as a representative of the human race, Adam was required to obey God's command to not eat of this tree in order to secure God's continued blessing. Theologians, and we'll talk a lot of theology today, but theologians have called this the covenant of works. And what is meant by that is that the blessing of God, the continued provision of God, was conditioned upon Adam's obedience to this one command. Eat whatever you want, don't eat that. And as long as Adam did that, he would experience blessing, he would enjoy the presence of God, there was a condition there. Obedience to this command, though, was dependent upon some, some kind of foundational beliefs and this is where the enemy attacks us. We get so focused on behavior, we never ask necessarily the questions behind the behavior. And so the foundational beliefs that the convictions that Adam was to hold and that Eve were to hold in order to continue to obey were quite simple. One was that God was good. And secondly was that his word was good. You see, it's necessary to believe that the rejection of what God himself declares good and right is a bad thing. If we reject what God says is good, regardless of how we feel, that's a bad thing. And more, we must also believe that there is no better goodness apart from what God has declared ultimately good. That rejecting what he said is good is bad. And believing that, oh, there might be something else better or gooder, is not a word, but that's also evil. So Genesis 3 begins, and we have this tree, and then we have this in, encounter, and this conversation that we get to kind of eavesdrop on. In Genesis 3, 1, it says this, the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. To stop there for a second. It's important to understand what the Bible teaches about the serpent. We don't talk too often about the serpent or the devil or Satan or Lucifer. And as such, we probably give him more credit than is due. We need to talk about what the Bible says about who this creature is. Emphasis on creature. The Bible teaches that Lucifer was a beautiful angel who, enamored with his own beauty, his own intelligence, and his own power, and he was beautiful, and he was intelligent, and he was powerful, the, the greatest, if you will, of God's created angels. But because he was so enamored with himself, he rebelled against God in pride. And essentially, he rebelled against God because he wanted to take God's job. You can read the spirit of that in Isaiah chapter 14. 
The Bible teaches that for his rebellion, and you read this in the book of Revelation and elsewhere, that for his rebellion, God cast him out of heaven along with a third of the angels who foolishly followed him. It's important to remember that Satan is a creation of God. There are only two things in existence, the creator and creation. And the enemy, Satan, the serpent, is part of creation. He is not equal to God, and he does not possess the powers of God. Now, his influence is everywhere, but he is not. He is not like God, where he is everywhere all the time. And while he is powerful, and he can affect the world physically, he can affect the world spiritually and economically in all kinds of ways, he does so as a dog on a leash requiring permission. And though he is not all-knowing, he does not know everything, he does not know every thought, he does not know every plan, he is more intelligent, more creative, and more powerful than any man who's ever lived. Remember, as an angel who's been around since the beginning, he watched mankind from the beginning. And therefore, he is the greatest and most educated historian there is the wisest psychoanalyzer of human behavior there is. He knows how to play with men. They're predictable. And after watching them for thousands and thousands and thousands of years, it's not too difficult to predict how men respond. And although he doesn't have any new tricks or any new schemes, he has the best ones and he knows which ones work most of the time. He is shrewder and wiser and craftier than any creation under heaven. And purely evil. Why do I say purely evil? Knowing the Bible. He knows what is written in here. Perhaps not believing, but knowing that he is destined to be destroyed in a lake of fire with all of God's enemies he has still devoted himself to exalting himself and to dishonoring God and destroying God's people. He does so most often by masquerading as an angel of light, all the while planning to eat his prey like a lion or destroy them by assaulting them with what the Bible calls destructive missiles fired over and over and over again to the spots where we are most vulnerable. He is good at what he does. And he's devoted to destroying us. Your enemy wants to kill you. Wants to kill your family. Wants to kill your job. Or give you whatever you want so that you will deny God. That is his goal. And there are many names that the Bible gives to describe the serpent, particularly in relationship to mankind. He is the deceiver. He is the father of lies. He is the murderer. He is the enemy. He is the dragon. He is the evil one, the prince of darkness, the ruler of this world, the antichrist, the adversary, the accuser, and most importantly, the tempter. 
Genesis 3 reveals him as the tempter. And as we read Genesis 3, all of us should be stirred to ask some really basic questions if you're actually reading. Questions like, if God creates Satan, does that mean God authored evil? Or a question like, why did God put the tree there at all? It's a fantastic question, but one we don't often ask because perhaps we don't like to hear the answer. See, the Bible doesn't say explicitly, well, verse 17, he put the tree for this. But there are some implicit things the Bible says that should give us pause as we meditate on them. If God is sovereign, and by sovereign I mean in control of everything, can do what is necessary, all-powerful, all-knowing. If he is sovereign, able to fulfill his plan perfectly, and it cannot be thwarted, then it must be conceded that God planned for the rebellion of man. That the tree was put there on purpose, and that makes sense because it says he planted it there but that he planned for the rebellion of man. And by his creation of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, he allowed for the possibility of disobedience, but being all-knowing and knowing what would happen in creating that tree, he ordained that the rebellion of man would come to pass. Why? Why? It goes back to several sermons I've preached in Genesis 1 and 2. And something that I hope we never forget, that if the entire purpose of creation itself is to display the fullness and glory of God, that basically everything is about Him, displaying who He is, declaring who He is, making much of His greatness and His glory, then that display must include pictures of mercy. Must include pictures of justice and love and grace. See, the absence of God's goodness is certainly evil, but that only makes his goodness and justice that much more glorious and easy to be seen. He is not the author of sin or evil, but... Let's be clear, it did not surprise him. He didn't go, okay, initiate plan B, because I didn't see this coming. That is not the God we serve. And he didn't simply react to it. Well, I wasn't sure if they were going to do this, so now I'll do this. It was a possibility. He planned for it to take place before anything was ever created. If, according to Ephesians 1, if Ephesians 1 is true, Ephesians 1 says that before the world was created, he had a plan to redeem, a plan to save a people. A plan whose purpose was to display the riches of his glorious grace. If you plan for grace... You are planning for sin. There can be no undeserved 
or unearned favor, grace, without someone who is undeserving and in debt. He planned for the rebellion of man. And we have to read not just Genesis, but the whole Bible and listen to the whole truth of God so that we don't fall for the lies of the enemy who wants to pervert little bits and pieces of it. If we do, we will fall in the same way our parents, our first parents did, first denying the truth of God's word and eventually rejecting God himself as a result. The plain truth that the Bible teaches that God created Satan and demons knowing what would happen and what fallen angels would do, but that does not deny or take away from the bedrock truth that God created them to display the riches of his glorious grace in Jesus Christ. Satan is not an equal power to God, and God is still sovereign over his creation, including Satan. He is, at best, a tool in God's plan. And he is a tool who plans and purposes and and executes much evil, but that does not thwart the sovereignty of God who has already planned and is always repurposing every bit of evil for good, beginning in the Garden of Eden. And Genesis 3 here doesn't tell us where the tempter comes from. That is elsewhere in the Bible, only what he is known for. And the tempter here is known for crafty traps and shrewd lies. And he comes in an unexpected form before Eve. He comes as a creature over which men and women have already been given dominion. And before she's asking questions about who is saying something, she is listening to what is being said, which is a great place for us to consider as we begin to hear what we think is truth, and here, what we may be like, who is speaking? Testing those spirits to see what is true, as opposed to just listening and listening and believing. And what he speaks to Eve in this little passage, seven verses, gives us a picture of all of temptation. And it's going to challenge you. It rocked me this week. First thing he says, he challenges her knowledge of God's Word. If we take a look, Genesis chapter 3, he says to the woman, Did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the servant, serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. But God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden. Neither shall you touch it, lest you die. His first question is always the first question when talking about what is true and what is right. And honestly, it's the most terrifying one for for Christians. The first question starts with, did God say? The beginning is always doubting what God says. And I said it's the most terrifying one because we're often ignorant of God's word. 
It's the question that's being asked by our culture, both Christian and non. Questions like, did God really say that abortion is evil? Did God really say that life starts in the womb? Did God really say that a man and a woman are different? Did God really say that we need the church? We have to gather as the church? Did God really say that you can't have sexual intimacy before marriage? Did God really say that homosexuality is a sin? Did God really say that there's a hell, an eternal hell? Did God really say that Jesus is the only name given under heaven by which men may be saved? The first step is always to create doubt in God's word. And that phrase, did God really say, is asked over and over and over and over again in our culture and our churches. He wants to create doubt. And I fear it's very easy to create doubt in God's people because we do not read and we do not know his word. And so we freak out when people ask those questions. Did God really say... And instead of responding with courage and clarity, we cower in fear because we don't know what God said. We're not sure. We devote ourselves to so many other things than we do to knowing, meditating on, memorizing God's Word. Most of us know more about football and film and Facebook than we know about God's Word. And while the ever-growing blogosphere is full of spiritual-sounding words, it is largely devoid of actual sound Scripture. And while we can quote pastors on podcasts and books that are written and great, fantastic teachers, we are not as quick to quote Scriptures. B-C-V, book, chapter, verse. And as a result, professed believers are tossed about by every wind and wave of change in our culture, whether it be from the church or not. They fall for false doctrine because they don't know God's word. And for whatever reason, Eve did not have precise understanding of what God had said. And some would call this nitpicky, but let's not forget there was only one command. And either she didn't remember it correctly or Adam did not teach her correctly. I don't know which one that is. But what I do know is that she was not prepared to make a good defense. And she was especially not prepared to make a good defense with an attack that was clothed in God's word. I mean, it's easy to deny like just foolish truth that's not biblical, but when you throw a little Bible in there, we fall for it because of our ignorance and shame on us for doing so. There's a reason why Paul commends us to pick up the sword and to fight and to prove yourself a workman able to wield and use the Word of God correctly. She was unprepared. And her knowledge of God's Word was exploited, or lack thereof. The second thing he does is he challenges the truthfulness of God's word, right? We see in verse 4, it says, But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. 
Now, there's so much said in that statement. What began as a simple question, perhaps a little doubt, has now grown into a full denial and even an accusation. Shamelessly, the serpent declares God's word to be wrong. No, 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 no. God's word's wrong. It's unreliable. It's untrue. And there are certainly different ways to do this. But what we're talking about is the truthfulness of God's word. Whether or not God's word can be trusted. Whether or not it is reliable. Some men reject God's word entirely. I think there are more that pervert it by making it say more or less than it actually does. And at the heart is the, is, is the question of truthfulness. Is this really true? And it sounds different in our culture. You probably hear it said like this. Well, it may be true for you, but it's not true for me. Or it may have been true yesterday, but things have changed. It's not true today. Or what... Well, it's true in that situation, but this situation's different. So it's not true now. The enemy wants you to believe. Wants you to believe that God's word is partial, outdated, insufficient, always a matter of interpretation. Rather than what it says it is, breathed out by God and useful for every good work. Whether that be yesterday, today, or tomorrow. The enemy is attacking God's word. That's where it starts. And about the tempter, Jesus said this. He was a murderer. This is in John 8. He was a murderer from the beginning. He does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. And when he lies, he speaks out of his character, for he is a liar and a father of lies. You know how someone's a liar? They keep speaking lies. That's one thing we don't... Satan has diarrhea of the mouth. Okay, you get it? He never stops talking. He's always filling the world and the culture coming through our TVs and people and everywhere. Lie, 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 lie. And if you don't listen to the truth, you will fall for lies because they're there. They're all over the place. And remember, he's a schemer. He knows. He's not going to like show up and declare something really crazy. He's subtle. He is right now destroying the church from within. Because he takes little Bible and he twists it a little bit. He's a liar and he never shuts his mouth. Temptation is more than just an opportunity to disobey. It is an opportunity to declare that God is right or God is wrong. God had said very clearly that the consequence for taking and eating of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil would be death. And the serpent's focus of his attack in denying the consequence of a sin, it, it goes back again to one of those foundational beliefs that we fall for, that there is no punishment for my sin. There's no consequence, no divine consequence for my sin. It doesn't matter. 
What I do doesn't matter. There's no punishment. And at the core, you know what that's a denial of? Again, it's about God, that he is holy. That he is just. He challenges the truthness of God's word, but he's actually beginning to challenge the nature and character of God himself. And he does it more than explicitly in the third part. He says in verse 5, not only will you not die, that's not true. He says, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good of evil. Isn't that the heart of temptation, this promise, this false promise? No one sins believing that bad's going to happen. But he's doing more than that. He's challenging the goodness of God's character himself, right? The denial of God's word is always and invariably going to lead to a denial of God himself. The serpent tempts us to obey so that we will ultimately disbelieve. He tempts us to disobey so we'll ultimately disbelieve. And every time we sin, we are disobeying God's word. But every time we disobey God's word, we are denying not just his words are good, but that he himself is good. Attacking God's character, the the serpent attempts to expose God as this eternal party pooper who doesn't want to give his children their best. We believe that more than maybe any other lie. He says, God knows, oh man, that's what I told you. You ain't going to die. You know what he knows? He knows it's going to bless you. He knows you'll be better off. He's holding back. He's holding back his best stuff. She doesn't rebuke the serpent. She just listens, and she begins to wonder the same thing that I think anyone in this temptation wonders. If what she thought was bad, maybe it's good. And worse, maybe, if who she thought was good maybe is bad. See, the enemy tells her that there's something better to be had apart from God's word. Happiness lies apart from God's word. And that's rooted again in basic beliefs. A denial of this basic truth that I have been settling on and, and resting on and The idea that what you have and what you don't have is a gift from God. That what you have right now and what you have had, everything is a gift from God. What you have and what you don't have. Oh, that can't be true. And what you're saying is, as you begin to believe that that can't be true, is that God doesn't always give me his best. That he's not giving me his best right now. Which is really to declare God is not loving. That's what the enemy tells him. Oh, he hasn't given you his best. He's not setting you up for success. No, no, he's, he is wrong and he's unloving. He's not going to punish you for that. He's holding out blessing. It's a temptation to believe the lie that God doesn't always give you his best. And they fall for it. The first epistle of John declares that in all the world, 
sin is pretty much categorized into three things. Lust of the eyes, lust of the flesh, boastful pride of life. And you see it here played out in Genesis 3. Lust of the eyes, lust of the flesh, boastful pride of life. There's all sin. Falls into one of those three categories. Verse 6 says, So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that was a delight to the eyes, that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took its fruit and she ate. And she also gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate. And the eyes of both were open, and they knew they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made for themselves loincloths. Temptation wouldn't work if it didn't feel good, if it didn't look good. The fruit appeals to her eyes. It's beautiful. Instead of asking questions about that which is beautiful, it continues and appeals to her flesh. Ooh, it's probably pretty tasty. I wonder. And the fruit appeals mostly to her pride. Although I'm already made in the likeness of God, I'm not quite like God like I could be. Really, I'm not God himself. I could be God. I could take control of my own life. And so she eats, deceived. And I think it's amazing to consider Adam, who sits there silently listening, perhaps as she eats going, okay, let's see what happens. She didn't die. And he willfully chooses to eat. The passage reveals the, the, really the nature of temptation because we are, um, we're blame shifters. In other words, we always want to look outside for like, oh, this is the reason why I'm in such a bad situation. This is the reason why I fell for temptation. If things were different, it wouldn't have happened. Excuses for our disobedience. But what we see in this is that our disobedience can't be blamed on the environment. Why? They had the perfect environment. They had everything. There was no lack. And so although we believe that like, well, if, if my circumstances were different, I wouldn't have to sin. I wouldn't have to disobey. I've been forced into this. I guarantee if it was better, you'd still sin. Because we'll see the best situation right here. Well, it's, my disobedience is generational. It's blamed on my heredity. My father and his father and his father and this and that, whatever. Like, okay, two people, the best parents ever. Can't be blaming. Adam can't go, Dad, though he tries. We'll see next week. Hey, it's the woman you gave me. No. I agree with James, who writes it pretty clearly about temptation. In chapter 1, it says, Let no one say when he is tempted, I'm being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil. He tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. And then desire, when it's conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it's fully grown, brings forth death. Verse 14 is Powerful verse. We sin because we are seduced by our own desires. Every time you sin, every time I sin, something has become so important for you to get that you're willing 
to sin to get it. That can be power. That can be pleasure. That can be protecting a reputation, getting approval. But whatever that thing is, it's become so important you're willing to dishonor God for it. You're willing to hurt others for it because that thing is so important. You desire something. What we desire governs our attitudes and it dictates our behavior. And that comes from within, not outside. Showing us the true nature of our temptation. And Adam and Eve were we're not born with a sinful nature, right? We're getting deep theology here. You understand that. They were not born with a sinful nature like we are today. And what that means is um, they, they, they were not robots in the sense that uh, unlike anyone else who would be born, they had the truest kind of form of free will. The F word, right? Free will. And what I mean is that they possessed in themselves the capacity to choose disobedience and choose obedience. Now, when the fall occurred, things changed. What do I mean by that? Well, this is what I mean. Left alone, men, mankind, only desire what is evil. Now, they may not desire the worst evil. They're not going to all become Adolf Hitler. We can all be more evil than we are less loving than we are, it is to say they will not in themselves choose God. Men are not free in the sense that they are so wrecked by sin that apart from God's grace, they will never desire or choose God. But here's the hope. God's not surprised by this. God knew this. God knows this. He included this as part of his plan. As strange as it sounds, as wrong as it might feel, God planned for Adam's failure in upholding this covenant of works and obeying. And this should bring us comfort. And here's why. Do you recognize or realize that God planned for your failure? I'm not saying he desired it. It grieves him, but it doesn't surprise him. This is why he planned for the covenant of grace. He knew Adam would not fulfill the covenant of works. He knew Adam would disobey. He planned for what is called the covenant of grace, where a savior, not a serpent, would offer something else to eat. In Matthew 26, on the evening that Jesus would be betrayed and arrested and eventually crucified, says, now as they were eating, he's with his disciples. Jesus took bread, and after blessing it, he broke it, and he gave it to the disciples. He said, take, eat. This is my body. And he took a cup. And when he had given thanks to it, when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sin. There was someone else who said, take and eat. 
And it didn't lead to death. It led to new life. The new covenant of grace is different in that it wasn't conditioned on our obedience. It was conditioned on Christ's. And Christ did it perfectly. Jesus, the Bible says, is the second Adam, the last Adam. And he assumes responsibility for my obedience. He takes my place where I should have obeyed. And he also assumes responsibility for my disobedience. And he takes the penalty that I deserved. He fulfills both sides of the covenant. He does it all. Jesus hangs on a tree of death. Cursed is a man who dies on a tree so that we could eat again from the tree of life with him in his presence back in the garden. The tree of the knowledge of good and evil was planned at the same time the tree of Calvary was planned. And that plan, that plan for grace, you know what it required God to do? Ordain evil against himself. You go, oh my gosh, what, what are you talking about? He planned to sacrifice his son to save the ones he loved. Remember the purpose of all, to display the riches of his glorious grace. If you don't believe me, let me wow you with a verse out of Acts chapter 2. Verse 22, Peter the guy who denied Jesus three times and now is leading his church, his first sermon ever. Empowered by the Spirit. What does he say? Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. This Jesus delivered up by the Jews, by Judas, by the Romans, according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God ordained evil against himself, and the cross is proof that God's word is true. That, guess what? There is a punishment for sin. God is holy. He does uphold his justice and proclaim his holiness. But the cross also reveals at the exact same time in the most scandalous of ways that God always, always, always gives us his best. That he is loving. That our sin is so bad that it requires the Son of God to die for it. But God is so loving that he sends his Son to die for our sin. All we have to do is believe. Believe that the work has been done. Believe that the penalty has been paid. All we must do is take and eat. And we will continue to take and eat every day and every time we gather until we partake, if you read Revelation 21, of the tree of life that is in the throne room of God. And there is no tree of knowledge and good and evil because the presence of sin 
has been removed. We take communion every Sunday in honoring and obedience to what Jesus said, take and eat. And the reality is, many of us during the week have taken and eaten of a lot of things God has said not to. But as we come to the table, we are reminded that that did not surprise God. It grieved him, but he planned to forgive you. He planned to cover that sin. And anytime you think, what about that one? He's like, yep, got that. Got that one. Got that one. And as we come and we take and eat, we participate and we're reminded that our salvation is not dependent upon what we do or not do. It's dependent on what God has already done in Christ. And so we take and eat and we get satisfied by the fruit of righteousness that comes from his cross. And we go out and remind people that you are saved by grace through faith in what Jesus has done. And God always gives us his best. And we know that because of this. So if you've been tempted to believe that God is not holy, if you are a not believer, go, well, my sin doesn't matter. That shows us it does. And if you're tempted to believe that God is not loving and he is holding out on me right now in my life and I'm not getting his best, the cross shows us that's not true. So I pray that we will celebrate and we'll rejoice in our salvation that is finished, but it began during this Christmas season when we see a little baby coming knowing that that baby is headed there. God planned for this from the very beginning before the beginning for the purpose of displaying the riches of his glorious grace. And that is why we will sing and celebrate. Let's pray. Father, we are awed by what you have done. And though your word reveals explicitly everything we need to know to understand it, Father, we struggle to believe at times. We confess, Lord, that we don't know you as we ought. We confess that we pursue other things and take and eat all kinds of things other than taking and eating of the food that brings life. We confess that we sin, Father, believing at times that there's no punishment that's going to come now or no punishment that will come in eternity, that you really don't care, but it's true that you do, and the cross shows us that, that there is a punishment for sin but that you inflicted that punishment upon your son so that we wouldn't have to face it. And we praise you for that. We praise you for the picture of love that it that gives us. We ask, Lord, that during this season we'll be reminded that you continually and always are giving us your best and that whatever circumstances we find yourself in, they do not surprise you, but that you are there with us. May you be glorified and may the name of Jesus be proclaimed boldly in this place. It's in his name we pray. Amen.